I invite you to Hebrews chapter 2 this morning in your Bibles. Hebrews chapter 2, if you have a Bible, please turn there. I'd like to pick up where we left off last week at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9 in particular. We can only begin to comprehend the cosmic glory that belongs to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Seated today at the Father's right hand, the risen Christ is exalted to the highest. He rules the universe in absolute authority and power. We know this truth by faith, but we struggle to grasp its reality, don't we? I think it is God's pleasure, though, for us to find in the mundane things of this world little glimpses, dim windows into the splendors of our Lord and into the splendor of the reigning Christ. You may not have realized it, but I think you peered through one of those windows briefly if you've attended or watched an important sporting event. Get the picture in your head if you can. The stadium is packed full. It does not appear, there does not appear to be a seat that's left. It's a very important game, and it's closely contested. And the home team wins right at the last second, and there's this deafening roar of the crowd. It rattles the bones. It produces goosebumps. There's a tingle all over. That is, in that moment, as the glory of that team and the greatness of that victory comes to bear on all of those watchers, that is a little picture that God gives us of the glory of Jesus. You boil all of those great victories and all of those spectators and all of that cheering and all of that glory into one, and we've not begun to scratch the surface of the glory that belongs to Jesus Christ. You were given a brief glimpse into that glory. If you've ever watched the regal splendor of a coronation ceremony or that of a royal wedding, there is no expense spared. Dignitaries from all around the world have gathered in this one place. There's the elaborate pageantry, the regal music. It's just a glimpse of the glory that belongs to Jesus Christ. You can just begin to taste that glory. If you can for a moment see yourself and feel it and smell it and sense it, you're riding on a horse as one of the attendants of an ancient king who rules his realm with absolute authority and marshals a powerful army. In recent months, his kingdom has been under attack by a dreaded and hostile force from another land. But the king has led his troops into battle, and with unprecedented courage and military genius, he has won the day and liberated his people by conquering this evil enemy. And there you are now, riding with him among his great generals, approaching the royal city. You do not know it, but his citizens now stand on the verge of a new era of peace and prosperity, and they know it, and they await the victorious return of their king with keen anticipation. And as you come to that, those gates, they open for the king. As you ride with him, you are stunned with what you see through the gate. 
There in this royal city are more people than you can imagine. Hundreds of thousands of people on both sides of a single lane that leads to the palace. And as the king passes through that gate and you with him on your horse, you're, you, you hear the roar of the cheering crowds as they recognize it's the conquering king. The sound overwhelm you, overwhelms you, your body tingles, tears involuntarily swell your eyes, your knees shake as the roar lifts you forward. You ride in procession behind the king as the crowd behind closes in around and there's just that little gap that leads to the palace as the people in frenzied exultation cheer their king if we can put ourselves there and sense all of the glory of that king on that day as we ride with him we have only begun to sense the glory of Jesus Christ Jesus is no mere king with a temporal sovereignty. He is the absolute monarch of the universe. He is the king of kings and the lord of lords. He rules forever and ever from heaven's throne. And Jesus' victory is over no temporal ruler. He has defeated the ultimate enemy, death. We can only begin to comprehend the glory that belongs to Jesus Christ. And we read one of the greatest attempts that has ever been made under the inspiration of the Spirit from Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 as we read it earlier. The author of Hebrews exalts and glorifies Jesus the King when he says in chapter 1 and verse 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty in heaven. It is no stretch then to say that Jesus is superior to the angelic hosts of heaven, is it? Verse 4, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. It may seem obvious to us that Jesus is superior to angels, but we must understand the context of the book of Hebrews. Remember that the Hebrews, the Israelite people, had a major problem with idolatry. And God cured them once and for all of that idolatry. He sent them into captivity in Babylon. The Israelites that came back from Babylon had problems with sin, and they had problems with honoring the Lord, but they never had problems again with idolatry. It cured them. But something developed in their sense of their knowledge of God. What developed was that God was high and lifted up and exalted. But there was no mediator. There was nothing in between, it didn't seem. And so many of the Hebrews began to develop a, a fully worked out sense of the worth of angels and of their importance and of their place in the creative order. And angels stood very tall in their estimation, these Hebrews. They understood as they looked at God the Creator that He had created man in His image, but that man was lower than the angels. 
Angels are greater than human beings in some sense. Angels are immortal. Angels cannot die. They never get sick. Angels are not limited as we are in their mobility. They are able, it would appear, to fly. They serve in the very presence of God. We serve as His representatives on this place called earth, but they serve in His very presence in heaven. They are glorious creatures who are superior to human beings. And so the conclusion of some was, we know this, angels are superior to man, and Jesus Christ was a man, therefore Jesus is inferior to angels. It's a logical deduction. The problem is is that it is not fitted to the truth of God. And so the author of Hebrews labors throughout, and you wonder, here in this very first chapter, it's very important to him to understand that Jesus is superior to angels. The issue, he knows, is the extent of Christ's glory. And that is a matter that he labors to express. The answer is found in a right understanding of the incarnation of Christ and the purpose for his taking on flesh, which we read in chapter 2 and verse 9. Chapter 2 and verse 9 of Hebrews. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. What does that mean? He was a man. But now, crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. I'd like to unpack the meaning of that verse by taking some time to develop the argument of the author in its context. I hope that we can come to see this more clearly and understand this more fully. As we consider Jesus made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because he tasted death for everyone. We do this as we consider the theme of the songs that we've sung today and as we prepare our hearts to gather before the table. Who is this one made a little lower than the angels who has tasted death for us? Well, the author of Hebrews gives us throughout the book a clinic in how to read the Old Testament. Simply put, he sees Jesus everywhere in the Old Testament. He never wrenches the Old Testament out of context. He never forces it to say what it cannot mean or to find mystical or fanciful references to Jesus where there are none. There are some who make the attempt to read the Old Testament like the author of Hebrews reads it, and they come with all kinds of goofy places where they find Jesus. This is not such a reading of the Old Testament. It is a thoughtful, purposeful, and deep reading of the text of Scripture that says Jesus is right there. And as he exposes Christ in the Old Testament text, his interpretation is unimpeachable. He read the Old Testament with the conviction that Jesus Christ is organically related to everything that we read in Revelation. And so I'd like to take you down the path that this author went down as he writes this text and go back to Psalm 110 and verse 1. I'd like to, I could quote these for you, but I'd like us just to look in the text of Scripture as we consider his reasoning about Jesus Christ from the Old Testament. Psalm 110 and verse 1, a very favorite verse of the author of Hebrews. Psalm 110 and verse 1, for he sees Jesus here in all of his exaltation. 
Psalm 110 and verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Sit at God's right hand is a position of exaltation. Wait for your enemies to be made a footstool. It says that they will, this is a final conquest. In the future, there will be a place where his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. That's not a compliment. To put your feet on somebody's back as they're kneeled before you. That was a way of showing your superiority and of your conquest of this enemy. So the author of Hebrews reads this passage. Now if you keep a finger here and go back to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 13. As this author is arguing that Jesus is superior to the angels, notice Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 13 where he says, To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Now there's an interesting thought. When the Lord says to my Lord, in Psalm 110, sit at my right hand, is he talking to an angel? No. The author realizes that the psalm refers to David, but in a fuller sense to the exalted son of David, Jesus Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. So this has to be a promise made to a man, and the only man that fits is Messiah. Seated now at the right hand of the Father, yet in the future, ruling over his enemies. It is perfectly fitted as a prophecy of Jesus Christ and where he is right now. And as I say often, the author of Hebrews is jumping up and down to point us to Jesus. Do you see him there? This fits him. Yes, it fits David, but it fits his greater son. Now, back in Hebrews 2, the author turns to Psalm 8 to bolster this very point. That Psalm 110 is not referring to angels, it's referring to Messiah. Let's go to Psalm 8 then and look at it there in the biblical text. Psalm 8 and verse 3. Now, ask yourself as you read Psalm 8 here, to whom is the word man referring? Or the Son of Man. What is the reference here in Psalm 8, beginning at verse 3? When I consider your heavens, Psalm 8, 3, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the Son of Man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. Notice that phrase. All flocks and herds and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. You've put all of that under his feet. Now let's go back to Hebrews 2. We have these two Old Testament texts in view. Psalm 110.1, seated at the right hand of the Father, waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool. We have Psalm 8, everything is put under the feet of man, subjection of the creative order. Now, let's pick up at verse 5 of Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2 and verse 5. 
We've got a long running head start here. Now we work our way to verse 9. Verse 5, it is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, namely Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. Let's stop for just a moment. Go back to verse 5. What is the world to come? What is the world to come? The world to come is this coming day when Messiah's enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. Does Messiah reign? Yes, the Father has said, sit at my right hand. But there's a coming day when his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. Two things that don't seem to allow separation. He's seated in victory, exalted at the Father's right hand, yet waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. Now that wasn't said to an angel, says the author here. There's a world to come in which Messiah will reign and conquer ultimately all of his enemies. That was said to a man. Now, think about this, things under the feet. His enemies will be put under his feet, but that reminds me of Psalm 8, where it says that to man God has put all things under his feet. It's a, it's a phrase meaning authority. As human beings, we have authority to rule over this earth. So he quotes Psalm 8 in verses 6 through 8 here in Hebrews 2. The author makes now two observations from Psalm 8. Notice the second half of verse 8. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. I think him there is man, Psalm 8. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. There is no qualification. God created mankind to rule over everything. Observation number two, second, last part of the verse. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. What is he saying? Mankind is not ruling over all things as God originally intended. No argument there. We'd love to heat the air a little bit last week, wouldn't we? Couldn't do it. Not ruling over all things. We're not subjecting the entire universe at this moment. We do not control the weather. People starve to death. Disease destroys people. We are not ruling. So what is the deal? Here's where it all begins to gel together. It gels at the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 9. But... We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor. Let me stop there. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. If you're following me at all, it's clear what that means, right? Jesus was made man. Man is a little lower than the angels. We see Jesus who was made man a little lower than the angels, but now crowned with glory and honor. How have we seen him thus? We've seen him that way because of his resurrection. He is exalted to the Father's right hand. 
By mere virtue of his incarnation, Jesus was crowned with glory and honor. He was man, verse 7. But there is more to Christ's honor and glory than we see in Psalm 8. Jesus' glory and honor as a man was realized in that next phrase, because he suffered death. Wow. There is nothing so inglorious as death. Losers die. We use that phrase, he or she lost the battle to, and we fill in the disease. Losers die. Not glorious victors. But Jesus became a little lower than the angels, that is, became a man, in order to suffer death. He was born to die. The Greek phrase here reads, through the suffering of the death. And I think that article is, those articles are significant. This is a specific reference to the vicarious expiatory death of Jesus. Those are fancy words. But for the vicarious death of Jesus, he died in your place to pay the penalty of your sin. There is a general glory and honor then that we have as human beings in ruling over this created world. But there is a greater and fuller glory that belongs to Jesus Christ because he tasted death. He died, as it says here, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For everyone, we could define as in the stead of all who are made a little lower than the angels, I think contextually. He tasted death for those made lower than the angels. That death, of course, is not efficacious for all, but it's sufficient for all. It's efficacious for those who through God's electing purposes trust in Him. But as verse 10 says, He brings many to glory, not all to glory. But those he brings to glory enter a glorious realm. Back to Psalm 8. Why is it that mankind does not now rule with full authority over the universe? You see how this all begins to gel and come together. Why is it that we don't control the weather? Why is it that we cannot conquer disease? Why is it that we are not subjecting the earth completely? The answer, of course, is the fall. Sin. And the hope is that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ initiated the reversal of the fall. Christ's condescension to become a man, says one, set in motion the great reversal. And the exaltation of Christ today bears witness that we will someday be fully restored to our rightful stewardship as rulers of the universe. So that in the world to come, we will participate in His rule over nature. We will rule as He ruled, and as He demonstrated He could when He stilled the storm. What is Jesus saying there? Many things. But when He stills the storm, He says, this is what man was made to do. When He raises the dead, when He creates food, he is ruling over the universe. I'm not saying that we're going to still the storm and create food in heaven. That's not the point. 
We will do what God calls us to do, but we will subdue nature so that nature will not raise its head against anyone again. Jesus began that reversal when he defeated death. And so he is crowned with a glory and an honor that is superior to the simple glory and honor referred to in Psalm 8 that belongs to all people. We will someday then, through his victory, as it were, ride with the king of glory as he passes on his way. So for Jesus, tasting death for everyone was simultaneously the great humiliation and the cause of the highest exaltation. Jesus was born to die. And having tasted death for us, God has highly exalted the Son, whom He will glorify for all eternity. Oh, how far short human speech falls to sense this glory. We can only begin to comprehend the cosmic glory that belongs to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We can only begin... And we can only set our hope on the future consummation of His kingdom when that glory will be fully realized on earth, when the enemies of the now exalted Christ are made a footstool for His feet. We can only begin to comprehend that glory. But we join God's people today. And let me tell you, what we do here is far more important than any athletic event. It's far more important than any coronation on this earth. We may not have seated among us great dignitaries and we may not have unlimited resources of wealth to display our celebration and our remembrance here today, but when the King of glory looks down on this earth, he doesn't think, think a blessed thing about an athletic event and the cheering and the great glory of athletes. I don't give a lick, says God, for the legs of a horse. And back then in that day, that was the great glory and the great power. It doesn't faze him at all. You put all of the things that show glory and splendor and majesty and regal worth all bound up together on this earth, and all it does is scratch the surface of the glory of Jesus Christ, whose death we here remember. We gather as God's people to bring glory to Him. There will be a day when this faith is made sight. There will be a day when all of the cheering and the splendor and the glory and the majesty of the voices of humankind are directed at the sun. And in our quiet, unassuming, and humble, and disregarded way this morning, that is what we do. We bring glory to the Son. As have His people, as they have been doing the first day of every week for nearly 2,000 years, we pause on this day to remember that Jesus tasted death for us. This is not a message of shame. An empty tomb 
makes it a message of glory. Let's exalt in the Lord Jesus Christ together. We come, our Father, to this table as you have bid us to come. We lift up the name of our Savior and we remember his death until he returns. And we believe, Lord, with all of our hearts that he is coming again as you have declared in your word. He came once. After thousands upon thousands of years of waiting, And then, following the final prophecies, 400 more years, your people received their king. He came in humility, as we've sung this morning. But Lord, we look forward to his return in glory. When the glory and the honor that he now has is made clear to his enemies. Now, in your patience and in your forbearance, you wait And you hold out the opportunity for repentance to demonstrate the rebellion of those who reject you and to demonstrate your great grace in opening the eyes of those who receive you. But while we wait for Jesus to come again, we stop now at this time, and as you have called us, we remember his death. We remember the body of Jesus Christ that was crushed for our forgiveness, the blood that flowed from his body to secure our redemption, the great sacrifice that was made because of our sin. Lord, we asked earlier in song, why should you turn your face on your son and we gain We do not know, but we exalt. We glorify the name of the Son, and we remember now the death that he died, the death that he tasted for us. We remember it, and I pray, dear God, that you will tune our hearts, that they would bend now with all of their worth, to commune with you. To commune with our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.